ECB has always said previously that the idea of a eurozone breakup is absurd. Do you think it's wise now for eurozone politicians to be talking about the possibility of one country leaving? The real answer is it's not in the treaty. Uh, and I have nothing to add to that. It's not in the treaty. There's no saving anything Now we're swallowing the shine of the sun There's no saving anything Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Today is Tuesday, November 8th. That was Mario Draghi, the new president of the European Central Bank you heard at the top, doing his best to dodge questions about a possible breakup of the Eurozone. On the show today, an economic riddle. No one wants to acknowledge that it exists, but if you can solve it, you could win $400,000. That's coming up in a minute, but first, the Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein. I'm going to start the indicator today with a little context, a little hand-waving. So there is all of this news out of Europe. Papandreou's out. Berlusconi is on the rocks. You got the ECB. You got all these different sort of variables flying around. But right now, there is really one number that you can look at to see how worried you should be about what's happening in Europe. That number is today's Planet Money indicator, and it is 67 The interest rate on 10-year Italian bonds hit 6.7% today. That is crazy. I mean, that number just makes me anxious because I've been watching this and I've been watching it tick slowly and slowly up. And it's scary because everyone talks about 7% being this magical threshold. If it hits 7%, Italy is just done for. They are totally screwed. Yeah. And so this is a big deal in a couple of ways. First of all, it's very important because Italy is so big. Italy's economy is about the size of the economies of Greece, Ireland, Portugal, and Spain combined, right? So it's a whole other universe of big if you're thinking about the rest of Europe trying to help them out. Two, this this idea you're raising, Caitlin, about this kind of threshold, there's this core problem where rising interest rates can put countries deeper and deeper in the hole, right? Because if your interest rate goes up, you have to borrow more money, then it means you're also paying more and more interest on that money. So you're just falling deeper and deeper into debt. That's why it's so urgent right now, this rise. And relative to a lot of other places in Europe right now, Italy's deficit is nowhere near as high. But if this continues and if it becomes more and more expensive for them to borrow money, they'll just get themselves deeper and deeper into that hole. And just for a useful comparison here, Germany, which is sort of the standard everybody's judged against in Europe, the interest rate on their 10-year bonds right now, it's below 2%. So this is really a huge gap, a huge spread, as they say. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. Okay, on to the podcast and that strange riddle we mentioned. Here it is. How can a country leave the euro and go back to using its own currency? This is a riddle that we think people in Europe have been thinking about. We think it's something that people in positions of power are wrestling with, but it's something that they've been afraid to talk about. Last Thursday, though, this unspoken question was finally uttered. Things got so bad that European leaders said to Greece, look, you got to decide whether you are in or out of the euro. For a moment, it looked like there was actually going to be a nationwide vote in Greece on whether they should leave the euro. So on the podcast today, we're going to imagine, suppose Greece wants to leave or some other country like Finland or Slovakia. They've had enough. They want to go back to their own currency. Could they do that? We ask how and what are the dangers? Caitlin, this is going to be a pretty quick podcast because I have in front of me here the text of the Maastricht Treaty, the treaty that created the euro that set up the rules. So I'm just going to look for the section on how countries can exit the euro, how it happens, what the procedure is. 
I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm still looking. <laughs> yeah, you should probably stop, David. Don't waste your time because there's no section in the Maastricht Treaty. When the euro was created, no one wanted to talk about the idea that it might not work or that someone might want to leave. Yeah, another wedding no one wants to say. And you may now kiss the bride. And by the way, here's the paperwork for the divorce. Yeah, exactly. No one wants to think about those dark and distant thoughts. But there is one guy out there basically trying to write this missing chapter. Well, actually not him, but he set up a contest for someone else to do it. Um, Simon Wolfson is, uh, is, my, is my name, and I'm a, I'm a peer, so I'm, I'm Lord Wolfson. What's, a, what's the longest, most impressive version of your title? Um, my full name is Lord Wolfson of Aspley Guys. What, what, and Aspley Guys is a place? Is that what the... It is a place, yeah. Did I just hear Caitlin giggle at that? <laughs> I was just enjoying it. Yeah, I think I have some title envy. David, what do you think about Lady Caitlin Kenny of Dayville, Connecticut? Has a nice ring to it, right? Caitlin, you're going to drag on the podcast if you make me call you that. So, <laughs> uh, Lord Wolfson is a politician and a businessman. He has just announced the Wolfson Economics Prize, and the award will go to the person who answers that question no one wants to think about. Here's how they put it. Quote, how best to manage the orderly exit of one or more member states from the European Monetary Union. The prize is uh, £250,000, which is around $400,000. Okay, so that's a that's a good bit of money. It is a, it is a very serious prize. In fact, it's the second biggest economics prize after the Nobel Prize. Wow! So who's putting up the money? Is it you? Yeah, I am. Why? Because um, this is a, a, the the future of the euro is one of these is one of the most important economic questions that um, needs to be answered at the moment, and, and no one's looking at it. No one's talking about it because no one wants to admit that the euro could fail. No one is putting the time and effort into developing a plan for what we should do if it does fail. What would we have to do to win your prize? Basically, you've got to come up with a way that the, that the euro could be dismantled. So you might be thinking, like I was, why does a Brit care about the euro anyway? But the euro matters to Lord Wolfson because he's CEO of one of Britain's largest retailers. They have stores all over Europe, four in Greece. The company is called Next, and they sell clothes and shoes and stuff for your house and kitchen. And some of the stuff that Lord Wolfson's company sells is made in Europe. People buy his stuff in euros, and he pays salaries in euros. I don't want the euro to fall apart. This is not a a method to take down the euro. This is a, a, a lifeboat in case the euro breaks up. And, you know, no, no ship ever sunk for having too many lifeboats. And at the moment, the euro has no lifeboats at all. There, there is no contingency plan. Caitlin, I'm thinking, you know, like, how hard can this be? Look, you just do the whole thing in reverse. Greece, Finland, wherever, just starts printing up a new currency to destroy the old euros. What's the big deal? Come on, David, you know it's not that simple. And actually, there's a famous example of how difficult it is. Well, famous to some people. You got to go back to 1878. The breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Currency Union. Remember that? We didn't remember it either. Actually, I asked Alex here, what do you remember about the Austro-Hungarian Empire? He said, uh, nothing. I said, what, like, what image comes into your head? He said, Nothing. It's a complete blank. <laughs> <laughs> the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as you might have guessed, was a union of the Austrian Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary. Austrian Empire plus Kingdom of Hungary equals 
Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it was pretty big, included Hungary, Austria, Romania, Czech and Slovak republics, large parts of what is now Yugoslavia, pieces of Poland and Italy. And as with the euro, the thinking was that things would be easier if there was one currency. It'd be easier for people to trade, there'd be one price for wheat or for wine, and they could sell each other more stuff. We called up economist Michael Spencer, who co-wrote a paper about this episode in history. He is now chief economist in charge of Asia at Deutsche Bank. Spencer says, like the euro, creating a new currency was a little complicated because the two areas not only had their own currency, but their own language. The Austrian part spoke German and the Hungarian part spoke Hungarian. But in 1878, they started this bold experiment with a single currency. It was called the Austro-Hungarian crown. So the top of the banknote would have been in German uh, or depending on where you lived, the top of the banknote would be in German. The obverse was in Hungarian. So, like, I can look at one side and feel like it's my currency? Yes. That's how you merge two currencies, is that you take you take a new piece of paper and you print one on one side and the other on the other? That's right, yes. That's how you make everybody feel welcome. It's kind of like today, how the euro coins have two sides. There's one side that everyone shares, but the other side looks different depending on where you live. Like in Ireland, on one side, they have a harp. And in Germany, on one side, they have an eagle. And as with the euro in Austria-Hungary, even though they shared a currency, they didn't share much else. The Austrian side had its own taxes, its own government, its own debt. The Hungarians had their own. You had, like the euro, a central currency, but no central government. Spencer says sharing a currency worked for a long while, for 40 years. I think as an economy, it worked reasonably well. Uh, They were a, a middling power in Europe. But relative to their neighbors to the south, they were actually fairly prosperous, and uh, they seemed to have it together. Just like the euro. And then, just like the euro, things did not go so well. To make a long story short, World War I happened. Austria-Hungary spent a lot of money fighting the war, they printed a lot of money, and that led to massive inflation. And remember, as with the euro, the empire was made up of all these different groups of people. And when the war was over, some of them said... Enough inflation, enough of this currency that is losing value every day. We are going off on our own. We want to set up our own currency so we can control our own currency. But here comes the hard part. Just like now with the euro, for Austria-Hungary, there was no prescription for how to undo this currency union. How do you create new money and get it out into circulation when you've been sharing money for over 40 years? What do you do with the old money? It's not like they planned for this. There's no guidebook. So how do they do this? Greece, countries of the euro, are you listening? Here's your answer. You make it up as you go along. Because the minute you decide to break away, all hell breaks loose. Here's the first problem. Everyone in your region is using the old currency, the Austro-Hungarian crown. You got to somehow quickly replace it with the new currency. So the countries came up with a pretty clever solution. Instead of piling up the old money and setting fire to it and then having to print new stuff, they decided to work with what they had. They put a stamp on the old bills. Starting next week, uh, bring all your currency to the post office or wherever, and we're going to stamp it, literally stamp it with an ink stamp. You walked into the post office and they and they stamped the name of the country. Uh, in the Czech Republic, they had a fairly ornate uh, stamp. Uh, in Romania at, at a time, um, they simply had a cross. It's as simple as saying, you bring your money into some place, we affix a stamp on it, this is now a Czech crown. It looks like an Austro-Hungarian crown, but it's got a, an ink stamp on it, so that makes it a Czech crown. I know it looks the same and there's someone's drawn something on it, but don't worry, it's new money now. Correct. It's not legal tender outside Czechoslovakia. Uh, and likewise in what became Yugoslavia and then eventually in Austria and Hungary, 
and Romania as well. And, and one by one, the successor states did this. Switching the actual paper bills, though, if you're a country trying to set up your own currency, that is the least of your problems. You got a much bigger problem, which is that your country is going to be flooded with money. Think about it. Yugoslavia, or what became Yugoslavia, was the first to break away and establish its own currency. And what it was basically saying when it did that was, we are not going to do what the empire is doing. We are not going to print more and more of our own currency. Our currency is going to be stable. It will be better. So everyone throughout the empire is looking at this happening, and they're thinking, I want to bring my crowns to your country. I want to bring them to Yugoslavia to get stamped. Because remember, the Austro-Hungarian crown was rapidly losing its value. There was all this inflation. So what do you do if you're Yugoslavia? Well, you got to try to seal the borders. It was pretty dramatic if you were living there. You woke up one morning and there was uh, you know, a lead story in the newspaper. Um, you're not allowed to transfer money in and out of the country through the banks. You're not allowed to take currency in and out of the country. Sealing the borders, easier said than done. People are going to find a way to get their money in. Because imagine you're in some neighboring country and you're still on the Austro-Hungarian crown. You're basically watching your money lose value. You're worried that all these bills you've tucked in your mattress or your jar or wherever you keep them are going to be worthless. All those years you've worked and toiled, it could all be for nothing. But then you read in the paper that Yugoslavia next door is starting up a new currency. And you figure if you can just get your crowns across the border and get them stamped in Yugoslavia, you'll be safe. Now, the stamps are only going to be available for a short while and the borders are sealed. But what's a border? There isn't some huge wall. You just walk through some farm fields and you're there. You're talking about border crossings at roads uh, in very rural, <laughs> underdeveloped areas. So it's very easy if you really want to go to the trouble of getting your money out of the country. So do you, do you imagine in your head at the time there were people on horseback with satchels filled with, with, with money sneaking it across the border? There have to have been because by the time Romania replaced these stamped notes with new Romanian lei, uh, you, ha you had boxcar loads of currency. So these were, these, were, these were not small amounts of money that people were moving across borders. Remember, back then, individuals typically didn't have bank accounts. Um, this was overwhelmingly a cash economy. So we are talking about tons of paper that was moving around. Some people even started forging stamps. In fact, so many people forged Yugoslavia's ink stamp that a year later, Yugoslavia had to create an actual physical sticky stamp and attach those to the inked money. You can think of it like this giant flow of money moving from one country to another as each country decides to break off and create their own currency. People are just trying to find the best place to get their money stamped. So the money flows from Czechoslovakia to Austria, from Austria to Hungary, from Hungary to Romania. It was basically a growing tidal wave of crowns looking for a home. So all of this currency flooded into the countries that were the last to separate from the uh, the precursor currency. So it was very clear that the that people understood very quickly the incentives where they wanted to uh, get their money stamped, and when they couldn't, uh, it simply became where can I still use this piece of paper? Because little by little, my unstamped banknote is becoming non-legal tender in different parts of the territory. So in the end, this currency ended up flooding into Hungary and Romania. In something like two years, the Austro-Hungarian crown had broken up into like five different currencies. The Austrian crown, the Hungarian crown, the Czech crown, the Romanian lei, the dinar for Yugoslavia. It was so disruptive, it took nearly 10 years for these countries' economies to stabilize. I mean, just try to imagine what it was like. For a while, it was unclear what anything was worth. Countries had to resort to just bartering, trading one good for another instead of using money. 
It was a real mess. Michael Spencer says if some country were to try it today, say Greece were to try to leave the euro and establish its own currency, in at least one way it would be maybe easier, because back then pretty much all money was paper. Now, a lot of it's digital. I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I have far more money in my bank account than in my wallet. Uh, so bank accounts would be converted immediately. You can certainly seal the borders actually more effectively today. You, you simply don't allow banks to transfer money you know, for 24 hours. No transfers in or out while we re-denominate everybody's bank account. But this speed cuts two ways. If some official in Greece or another country were to so much as breathe a word about maybe, possibly, theoretically considering at some point leaving the euro, money could flood out before you would even have time to seal the borders. That is one of the lessons from 1918 is word gets out. And even before uh, countries started uh, stamping notes, um, people were moving currency across borders. So, uh, yeah, in in principle, if you could spring this by surprise on everybody, uh, it can be done. It is much more likely that people see this coming. Uh, and then, of course, as you could have the entire deposit base of your banking system flee overnight. The entire deposit base of your banking system flee overnight, what one economist called the mother of all bank runs. This is the real danger in trying to do something like this today. Essentially, everyone with, say, a Greek bank account would say, I'm out of here. I'm transferring my money out of the country before my government freezes my bank account and turns my money into some new, potentially less valuable currency. And some people would argue that this is slowly happening in Greece already. Money is flowing out of the country to banks in other places, stable places like Germany. Another thing that makes breaking up the euro harder than the Austro-Hungarian crown breakup is that the global financial system is much more interconnected now than it used to be. If you just sort of start to think about the implications for the real economy as, as companies essentially stop functioning while they try to sort out you know, do I have exposure to this country? Where, where's my deposits? What currency is, de is it denominated in? Am I billing people in what currency? Uh, I think it's, it's a massively disruptive thing to do, even for a relatively small economy like Greece. And of course, there's Greece's debt. You can't forget about that. It owes countries all around the world money. And those debts are denominated in euros. So creating its own currency doesn't help with that. For Michael Spencer, the lessons for Greece from the Austro-Hungarian Empire are clear. I would think of it as, as a dire warning for people who think this is an easy process. I think the idea, this sort of fantasy that withdrawing from the euro is, is sort of an easy thing to do. It's been done before, and it's really no more difficult than joining the euro. Um, I, I, think, I think that's a fantasy. I, I think this is not a process that anybody's going to be able to control. Which brings us back to the contest, Lord Wolfson's quest for an orderly way to leave the euro. Clearly not an easy contest to win. The folks running it will be accepting submissions in a couple weeks. The prize is 250,000 British pounds, but you can convert it into whatever currency you want. We'll post a link to the Wolfson Economic Prize on our website npr.org slash money. And as always, we want to know what you thought of today's show. You can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Caitlin Kenny. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. I'm going everything With you swallowing the shine of the sun I'll go everything Through the shine of the sun